All right, you guys can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start reading with verse 16. All right, Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 16. So I'm going about my week, just normal week. It's time to get the mail. Our mailbox, the door keeps falling off of it, and I keep reattaching it. Um, but William now is getting to the point where he likes to go get the mail, and I'm trying to be very cautious about it because the mailbox is right next to the road and all this kind of stuff. So we make sure there are no cars coming, and he runs down there, and he gets the mail. And as usual, when you get mail, there's, there's junk mail. Uh, I get church mail, so I'm always sorting through which, which is mine and which is the church's. And um, I'm going through these letters, and there's one from uh, the county clerk. Like, hmm, what does this mean? You guys know what that means, right? Jury duty. We've got jury duty. And it's a time period from like sometime at the end of April through June. I don't remember exactly, but it's like, uh, this is not a summons. You don't have to go up here at the courthouse at a particular time. But we're just letting you know that you might have to serve on jury duty. Anybody ever done this before? Yeah? Like, I've done it once before. I had to go down there. I didn't get picked to be on the jury. You sit there for a few hours. They try to select jury members and all this kind of stuff. And um, took a book to read or something. Because you're not allowed to have electronics and all that kind of stuff in there. And then ended up going home. So I'm reading this letter, and they're like, um, oh, and by the way, if you're selected or whatever, you can earn up to like $30. I'm like, woohoo, you know, like 30 bucks. All right. But, but the, the idea behind, behind this is that people are evaluated by a jury of their peers, right? And so if you go and serve on a jury, there are some expectations that uh, the court has of you, right? It's, it's up to the judge to kind of explain the law and tell you what the law is. And then the lawyers argue about the facts, and they try to convince you that a certain set of facts are true. And as a jury member, you're supposed to weigh that evidence and try to come to a conclusion about whether or not a person broke the law. You're asking the question whether or not that person is, is guilty or innocent, right? And your job as a jury member is to examine the facts. And it's not necessarily about what you feel about a particular subject. It's not how um, you think a law should be. It's, it's not whether you like this person or not. It's all about what is the evidence you're supposed to weigh it and come to a conclusion, a fair and honest conclusion, is this person innocent or guilty? And the way that, that our system works and the way that our system is designed, we know that very often our system doesn't work the way that it should. Very often it's broken. But the way, the way that the, the idea of justice in our minds, at least, is if a person is guilty of breaking the law, then the judge issues a sentence. And there is a penalty or a punishment that is given to the person who has committed this crime. So... I'm going to think about this idea of justice because we're working through this concept of giving a reason for the hope that we have. And over the last several weeks, we've been talking about the problem of evil and suffering. And we saw that there was moral evil in the world, that there are wrong things that, that people do. And then there's natural evil. Just the example this, this past week, the, the tornadoes that, that occurred in um, in Tennessee and those other states, right? Like, there, there's this suffering that happens as the result of, of just natural forces in the world. 
But as we looked through those things, and we wrestled with the intellectual problem and the emotional um, problem that goes along with those things, we saw that a lot of the evil that occurs in the world is the result of people's bad choices, right? They do wrong things, and there is pain and suffering as a result. Well, we asked the question, well, why doesn't God just put a stop to all evil right now? And, and we said, well, if we look very closely, even at ourselves, we would recognize that we are a source of evil, that we do wrong things. We have awful thoughts. There are desires that we have that are against God's plan, that are against the goodness of, of God. And so if God were to put a stop to all evil right now, he'd have to put a stop to us. And so as we begin to explore like, okay, what is God going to do about this moral evil in the world, these wrong acts that people commit, the, the answer from the Bible is that he will put a stop to them, that God will bring an end to the evil that people commit. And so today we're going to look at God's justice. Now, we've been in various ways through this series talking about how God is good. We have a good and loving God. And we can ask the question, what does it mean for something or someone to be good? And there's all kinds of different ways to think about goodness. And they're, they're all valid. We could talk about beauty. This is, this is the idea of aesthetics, right? Things that are, that are beautiful, that are, that, are, that are pleasing, that are attractive, right? Um, we could talk about goodness in terms of delight, things that we enjoy, things that, that bring pleasure. We can, talk about we can talk about goodness in relation to morality, the idea of there um, being good and evil in the world, that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And remember when we talked about goodness in terms of morality, we said that evil is just a deviation from the standard of goodness, and that standard of goodness is God. Right? So anything that deviates. You can have good without evil. Sometimes you'll, you're, you will hear people say, well, without evil, you wouldn't know what good is. That's backwards. That's wrong. That's not accurate. That's not true. There is good, and then there is deviation from good. And so you can't have evil without good, but you can't have good without evil. All right? So we can speak of goodness in terms of moral goodness. And all these different aspects of goodness are, are true of God, right? He's beautiful. He's, he brings us delight. He's, he's morally good. All these things. But our focus today is on this moral aspect of goodness. And the, the term that the Bible uses for God's moral goodness is the term righteousness. When we read about God's righteousness, as you read through Scripture, go, go look up verses that talk about righteousness. You'll see two different aspects of God's moral goodness or God's righteousness. The first is love, and the second is justice. So in Scripture, when it talks about God being full of love and merciful and gracious and compassionate, these are often called acts of righteousness. But also, we see that God's righteousness encompasses justice. God's moral goodness um, has to do with justice. So God's righteousness, just to sum this up, encompasses both love and justice. And when you look at Scripture and you see acts of salvation and acts of judgment, they are both called righteousness. All right? 
I could walk through a bunch of examples. We, we don't have time today. So just, just, just we were thinking in these, these categories. And so way back a, a, a number of months ago, before we did the series on the Word of God and the Bible and all that kind of stuff, we began to talk about how our God is a God of grace and truth and how we're to represent um, Him gracefully and truthfully. And we, we described how God is good, and we looked at this passage in Exodus 34. And I don't have time to go into it today. It's um, probably September or October, sometime around there. If you go back online on Vimeo and you're looking for those sermons, if you want to dive deep into this verse, that's, that's where you would do it. But we have God in, in the book of Exodus proclaiming his name to Moses. He's describing himself, and this is what he said. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for their, um, he punished the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. So as God reveals who he is, I, I believe this is a, a wonderful um, just encap, encapsulation. I can't but blah, I can't talk today. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Encapsulation of his goodness, right? It's both his, his um, love and his justice, right? He's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And, and this second part, we, we, we looked deeply at those words, and it says he punishes the children for the sin of their parents. It's not like your, your dad died so you get punished for what he did. That's not what that verse means. It means that within the context of the nation of Israel, when, when people sinned, it had an effect on generations. And if those um, younger generations continued in their parents' sin, then they would continue to receive the punishment for that sin, right? So it's, so it's not the idea that he's unfairly punishing someone for something someone else did. We saw in Ezekiel 18 that that, that, that wasn't true. But that, go back and look at that message so that I can't get into all that. That's a, that's a side issue for the day. But, but what we're getting at is God is both compassionate, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The idea here is that God is just. And we think about justice then, we, we describe justice as fair and equitable treatment, that God doesn't show favoritism, okay? He treats all people fairly. Justice, as you read about justice, especially in the Old Testament, over and over again, it's about setting things right. That God looks at the people who've been taken advantage of because there are evildoers in the world, and he says, I'm going to put a stop to that, and I'm going to set it right. I'm going to restore. I'm going to set free the oppressed. I'm going to come to their rescue. That's an act of justice. And then we can also describe justice as allotting what is due, that, that, that God gives what people deserve. And you see over and over again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is just, that he is pictured as a judge. He's not just, you know, our buddy in heaven. That, that's not the picture of God. Like, God is a friend. God does come and enter into this relationship as a loving father, but he is also the judge of the universe who will hold men accountable for what they do. And Scripture says that God judges justly. So here's just an example in, in Colossians 3. It says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. 
It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So we just see in this verse, like, God um, will reward those who do right, and those who do evil will receive wrath and punishment, right? It says that they will be, pay, be repaid for the wrongs that they do, and God doesn't play favorites. He's not just going to be like, well, I like you, so I'll overlook your sin, but you over here, I'm kind of mad at you, so I'll take you out. That's not how it works. Or it's like, God, God is not a respecter of persons in that way. So today what we're going to do is dig deeper into this idea of God's judgment. And we're going to read a lot of scripture. So I want you to bear with me today because I, it's important that we have full context as we talk about what God's plan is in dealing with the evil that's in this world, right? So let's start reading with Romans 1, verse 16. We're going to read this to the end of the chapter, okay? Here we go. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. So the book of Romans is all about the gospel of salvation and how we are saved through faith. There, there, there is good 
news. But in the first couple of chapters that we're going to look at here, uh, Paul is laying out that there is a, a problem that we have as human beings, and that is we have rejected God and that we are under judgment. And so as we look at this, we see that God's righteousness is revealed in salvation and on judgment of sin. It's both those things, his love and his justice, right? And so in verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness. And that word wickedness is the word unrighteousness, right? Remember we talked about there is good and then there is deviation from that standard, which is what we call evil, right? So there is righteousness or the right thing to do, and then there is deviation from that and that's unrighteousness. It's, it's what the word literally means, and we just call that wickedness. But when you hear the word wickedness, it's, it's not righteous, not good, is what we're talking about here, right? And so it says that God has wrath because people are doing unrighteous things. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not necessarily comfortable with the idea of wrath, right? Like, you don't want to get under the wrath of Brandon. That's a, that's a problem. Ask Ask my family, you know, like, like that's, that's not a good, like, we, we, we tend to think of anger and we think of people like flying off the handle and doing things that aren't right. Um, in fact, in the book of James, it says that we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because what he says there is that the, the anger of men does not lead to the righteousness of God. It's important that we understand that many times when we get angry, we're tempted to do wrong things with that anger. And so when we hear about God being angry about something, we're like, I'm not comfortable with that. That doesn't feel good to me, right? But, but the reality is that God is perfectly good. He is perfectly righteous. And that there is a way that God is righteously angry. We can also be righteously angry. It's just very often where our anger doesn't lead to righteousness, right? But, but imagine, like, someone comes along, and you're, you're, you got your kids out there, you know, like, playing on the playground or something, and, and someone comes along and just pushes them down. Are you happy about that? Are you cheering them on? Are you sad for that person? What are you? You're angry. You don't mess with my kids. That's not right. That's not fair. You ought not do that, Right? And you can be righteously angry about an act of evil. Now, the question is, how are we supposed to handle that, right? But as we've been saying, God is the just judge of the universe. So when we talk about this idea of God's wrath, this isn't some random human emotion. We're flying off the handle and we're just getting upset for no reason and all this kind of stuff. This is, there are wrong acts being committed and God says, no, you will not do that to my child. You not do that to the person that I love. There is a righteous anger that comes when people do evil. The Bible says that there's going to be justice. So it describes the unrighteousness of these people. It says, they, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. And it says, they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. And we start to see... God pouring out his wrath on these people, but it comes in a form that you might not expect. There's an aspect of God's judgment, of God's wrath, that might look a little differently than maybe what we would imagine, right? 
I'm not saying that, that God doesn't actively punish people, but part of the way, or one of the ways that he does so, in, in this passage at least, it says that God gave them over. Part of God's judgment is he's the good God, he sees people doing evil, and part of their judgment is he is stepping back and saying, that's what you really want? Okay, you can have that, but I have goodness for you. I have um, uh, delight for you. I have joy for you. But if you want to walk away from me, I'll let you have the consequences of your actions. And part of God's judgment is stepping back and letting people receive what is due to them instead of stepping in and continuing this hedge of grace and this hedge of protection, he says, no, you can have at it, right? So three times it says that God gave them over, and it's three different things. He gave them over to sinful desires, he gave them over to shameful lusts, and he gave them over to a depraved mind. If you re- read that, those last few things, they're, they're um, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they're gossips, they're slanderers, they're God-haters, they're arrogant, they're prideful, they're um, inventing ways of doing evil, right? Like, God says, you guys aren't thinking properly. And he steps back and he removes his protection as an act of judgment. And it's important as we look at the last piece of this, it says that they both do and approve of unrighteousness. Think about that, right? Like there are some times in my life where I recognize something is, is not the right thing to do and I do it anyway, but I would say, hey, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that, right? That's not the picture here. This, this idea of depraved mind is like they're just, they don't have any clue anymore of what's right or wrong. They, they do evil acts and then they look at those evil acts and they call them good. They're basically saying, hey, it's okay to do this and not only should I do it, but everyone else should do it too. We're, we're, we're giving our approval and we're calling what is evil good, right? That, that's the picture here, right? And so God says that he's going to, to judge this. Now, maybe some of us would look at those things and be like, well, I, I don't approve of those things. Envy and murder and strife and deceit, malice, gossiping. Like, I, I, I might do those sometimes, but, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't approve of them. I wouldn't call that, that right, and if you're in that camp and people who are in that camp, good. This next section is for us. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge one another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are stirring up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law but do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So there's a whole lot packed into there. Let's just sum this up, right? The picture is, okay, there's a, there's a group of people who do evil and approve of it. But then in chapter 2, there's a group of people who at least recognize those things as wrong, right? What does he say to this group? He says, at whatever point you judge, you are condemning yourself. Because if you look at something and say that it's wrong, if you have a whole category of things that these are wrong, the reality is you've probably committed some of those acts. So if you can recognize it in someone else, you ought to be able to recognize it in yourself. And what does that mean? That you are just as guilty. He says that God's going to repay everyone according to what they've done, that there's going to be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, and that this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. In other words, God's going to judge justly everyone who does wrong. Just because you might look at something and say that's wrong, you're not exempt because you recognize that because you, yourself, we all do these things, right? Now, we're going to skip over the next section. It's directed to the Jews. And he basically looks at the Jews and says, you're not in any better place. Don't think that you're better than those other people, right? And then he picks it up here. We're going to read in, in chapter 3, starting with verse 9. He sums up all that he's talked about before, and he says this, what shall we conclude then? Chapter 3, verse 9. Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. All right, so he sums up his argument, and he basically says, hey, we're all in a bad spot. Not a single one of us can live up to this standard of righteousness that God has. Not a single one of us is, is, is absolutely perfect, right? You might be trying to do some good things. You might hope that your good things outweigh the bad things that you've done. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter whether the criminal 
has done millions of good acts in his life. If he murdered someone, he's guilty. And this is the picture as we stand before God. No matter how much we try to prove our own goodness, we fall short. I sin. I think horrible thoughts sometimes. That before God, I do evil. I'm not righteous. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. There is no one who's righteous. That every mouth is going to be silenced and the whole world is going to be held accountable to God. What this means is when you stand in the court before the judge of the universe, you're not going to be able to say, hey, let me argue my way out of this. There's a good reason I did that thing, right? Like, ooh, got a bunch of kids and they always try to argue. There's, you know, I hit my sister because, and I was justified in doing so. No, you're not going to be able to argue your way out of it before God, that we're all liable to judgment, that we're all liable to punishment, that we're all worthy of death. It says no one's going to be declared righteous by works of the law, that we can't be righteous simply by doing good things because we do evil as well. So this next section in the book of Romans, we're going to read it today, but the next section in the book of Romans is, is what gives us hope. He says there is a righteousness that comes from God that's by faith and not by doing good things, right? And that's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to be talking about that on this coming Friday, Good Friday. So we're going to continue this idea of justice and mercy and how God is just, yet he's able to save people. We're going to pick that up on Friday and then again on Sunday. But, but right now we're stopping here at this idea that there's this bleak picture in reality before God for all humanity, that we all are guilty of sin, and God is just. He will work out justice, and if we're guilty, then there is a punishment that's coming. There is wrath that's coming. There is judgment on wrongdoing, all right? So God is the just judge, and he's going to handle sin. He's going to punish evil. Now, again, there's hope for us. We'll get to that later on in this week, but at this point, as we begin to talk about judgment, some things begin to rise in my heart, and you'll hear these objections from people on the internet, and maybe you have some of them as well, and they're, they're in me too, right? Think about my status before God as guilty, and I go, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Judgment and punishment? I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Like, I mean, isn't God a God of love? I mean, the Bible says God is love, right? The Bible says God is love. So, like, you know, God loves me. He's not really going he's not, he's not to punish me, is he? Like, isn't he just going to, like, I mean, yeah, I do some pretty evil, evil wicked things, but, but he loves me. It's okay. He's going to ignore it. He's going to pretend that it's okay, and we're just going to pass over it. You know, like, I mean, those people are really evil over there. He's going to do something about them. But, he's, but he loves me, right? God, God knows my heart, and he knows that, you know, I'm, I'm not really trying to be that bad. God is love, and he's just going to overlook my sin. Again, God is a loving father, but he's not our cosmic buddy in the sky. He is the creator. He is the standard of goodness. And if we want to be in his presence, our sin has to be dealt with. And if, it's, and if we're not willing to avail ourselves to Jesus Christ and the, the offering of grace that he has, then sin will be dealt with. And we have to deal with this idea that, that a God of love is compatible with a God of justice. So we're going to look today at the, at the scriptures that declare God is love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 
Again, we're going to read a big chunk, but you have to see the whole context here to get the whole picture. All right? First John chapter 4, verse 7. Is this idea of judgment compatible with God's love? Well, John's talking to the church and he's telling them how they ought to treat one another. And so he picks up in verse 7. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed us or showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So this, this passage that teaches that God is love, what is the context here? What is he trying to get the people to do? He's trying to get them to love one another. And he says that God is the ultimate example of love. And if you're loving one another and if you're living in Christ, then that is how you can know that you're in the love of God. All right? So he tells them, love one another because love comes from God. Is this tracking with me now? No. I got an error here. Let's try this. Love one another for love comes from God. And God showed love by sending his son. Twice it says God is love in this passage. But think about the context here and the things that are, that are going on here. And he says, this is love. He, he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So how does the love of God apply to our sins? God has offered a way out, the payment of a price, an atoning sacrifice. And God showed us his love by going to the cross for us, by dying and paying the penalty that we deserve. And this passage, it affirms that there is a day of judgment that's coming. And it says that, that we are commanded to walk in love, that we're commanded to, to walk in, in God and his love and love each other. And if we don't, God is not in us. And so the only way that we can have confidence on the day of judgment is if we are living in his love. If we're not living in him, if we're not living in light of his love, 
if we're not in a loving relationship with Him, if we're not loving others because He first loved us, then we ought to fear. If we're not living in right relationship with Him, we only can expect punishment and judgment. So very often, even in my own heart, I'll say, yeah, but God, you're a God of love. The Bible says God is love. You'll hear this objection. Maybe it rises from within you or from the outside. And the answer is, look at the passage. It's a warning about the coming judgment. And this is not something that I delight in. This is not something that I take pleasure in. But I'm trying to say there is a coming judgment. God is warning us. I have love available for you if you will receive it. But if you do not receive it, you can expect punishment. It should break our hearts. We need to be careful that we don't misuse the Word of God and pull a scripture out of context and try to make it mean something it doesn't mean. There's a warning that God, God loves us. He has this desire for us. He has, a, he has a good desire for us. What is it that He wants? He, he wants us to turn away from evil and to enter into a life of love in Him. He has made it available through Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we have this wrong picture of the just judge, God. Sometimes we, we picture him up in heaven with lightning bolts or a big stick, hoping that we mess up so that he can whack us, so he can just wipe us out. That's, that's not God. That's not how he describes himself. In Ezekiel 18, we looked at this all the way back when we did that uh, study on Exodus 34. There's, there's this time where Israel is questioning God's justice, and they're saying, God... We think you punish children for the sins of their father. And God says, no, 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 no. You have to go back and look at the entire passage. He says, no. Each man will be accountable for their own sin. And so if the father sins, he'll be punished. And if the child sins, they'll be punished. And he looks at the Israelites at the end of this chapter where he's saying like, hey, if, if they're righteous people and they turn away from God, they're going to receive punishment. And if they're wicked people and they repent and they turn to God, then they're going to receive grace. And he looks at the Israelites and he says this in Exodus, excuse me, in Ezekiel 18. He says, Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God is just and he will bring about justice. And that means punishment to those who do evil. But it's not like he's enjoying it. Rather, his heart is grieved. But as a just and good God, he will deal with sin. Imagine you're in that that courtroom scenario, and you've been called in to be a juror, and you understand the law, and it's clear, and you understand the facts, and it's clear, and this person has clearly committed murder. They are guilty. You've gone to the deliberation room. All the jurors said, yeah, it's obvious. This guy committed this murder. We have this evidence. You come back into the courtroom. The verdict is read, and the verdict is guilty. And the judge looks at it and goes, yeah, that's true. He is guilty. No big deal. You're free to go on your way. And he looks at that criminal and he turns him loose. What does your heart say? That's not right. That's not justice. This wrong has to be paid for in some way. And God, as judge of the universe, is not going to blink at sin. 
He's not going to blink at evil that we commit in our hearts and that we do in this life, the things that we speak. He's not just going to blink at it and say, no big deal, you're free to go on your way. He provided Jesus as a sacrifice and a payment, but if we won't accept that, if we don't receive that pardon, then we are liable to punishment. But that's not what he ultimately wants. He wants us all to be saved. We read this in Acts 17. It says, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In other words, God is bringing justice about in the world through Jesus Christ. That we can either be reconciled to God through Jesus, or we will receive justice, what is our due, punishment, if we reject his pardon. This ought to break our hearts. As people who are aware of the evil that we do, and as we, looked at, as we look at the world around us, see, we have a righteous judge. He is morally good. He's morally perfect in every way. He displays his righteousness in both love and justice. He is fair and he will give what is due. He judges justly and he will punish evil. There will be a time when wrong acts are dealt with before God. And before we think, oh, that's their problem over there because they're the sinners, the reality is that we all sin and that we will all be held accountable before him for the evil that we commit. None of us measure up to that perfect standard of goodness. And yet, God doesn't want us to bear that just punishment. He longs for us to repent and live, and He has sent His Son, Jesus, as the atoning sacrifice. He has put His love on display on the cross so that we can receive mercy if we trust in Him. Our God wants us to find life in his name and to walk in his love. He wants us to know that he can be trusted to do what is right. And he will deal with evil. But he can also be trusted to show mercy. If we turn to him, we can live. And this is the truth that each one of us has to wrestle with. Because I want to look in the mirror and I want to say, you're a pretty good person. You're not so bad. You know, you're doing some pretty good things. And very often I want to ignore all the junk that's going on inside of me. When instead I ought to bring it before God and throw myself at his mercy and say, I can't live up to it, God. I'm guilty, God. Have mercy. And our God is a God of mercy when we turn to him. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I want to thank you for this time to dive deeply into your word. I know that we've read a lot of scripture and that we covered a lot of ground, but God, it's, it's so fundamental. It's, it's important that we stand on truth. And God, like you, we, we don't want to delight in the destruction of the wicked. There are people that you love. There are people that we love, but we understand, God, that there is justice in the world and that you are holy and that you are perfectly good and evil cannot stand in your presence. Yet, God, you're merciful and you made a way for us. 
you dealt with our sin in Jesus Christ so that we could have life. God, I pray that you would help us to receive it from you today and walk closely with you in your love. We pray for your help in this by the power of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.